I was covered head to toe in baby oil and he was wearing like a pirate hat or something. Oh, hi. This is the Carpenter Queens podcast coming to you live from the employee bathroom at the TCQ video store where you can pick up the best and worst in horror for only 69 cents a day. Welcome fellow queerdos. I'm secretly stealing toilet paper from the storage closet, Nicholas. Moving forward, I will only be going as my new alias, Benedict Cumberbitch, Raymond. Welcome. welcome to this week's episode, guys. <laughs> welcome, 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 welcome in. Holy shit, that was great. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I hope you guys are having a fantastic week so far. So we just finished episode 10. Yay, we're now in the double digits. Yes, we are officially in the double digits. And that's a big feat for us. That's for- a huge feat. For two queens who are just, you know, know nothing, just grab some microphones and some <laughs> basic editing software, and now we have a podcast. I think that's a pretty big, a pretty big uh, deal. I think that is a fantastic deal. Uh, we set out just to have fun for this, and I'm still having fun. So here we mm-hmm. are, having fun, flirty, and thriving on episode 11. That's so great. Thirty flirty and thriving. <laughs> and today we are returning back into the depths that is John Carpenter's filmography on one of probably my number one Carpenter flick. It's definitely my top five. Wouldn't say it's my number one. It's my number one's Halloween still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that we're jumping back because I'm mean, obviously with the Carpenter Queens. So I love that mm-hmm. we're coming back into our realm, back into the Carpenter uh universe i i'm I, i'm gonna keep pushing this uh, theory of mine <laughs> of this carpenter universe because it, it shows up again in today's episode so i can't wait to dive in Ugh, me too listeners if you haven't picked up or read the title of this week's episode we are talking about 1982's the thing which is beyond exciting beyond thrilling because i have i've okay so There's only one episode that matches the amount of notes that I've done for this episode. The only other episode, unfortunately, is the Leprechaun series. I had about (laughs) nine to 10 pages of that, but it was a whole series and the thing kind of matches it. That's crazy because the Leprechaun was an entire series. This is one Mm -hmm. film. (laughs) Well, it's just, it's so juicy and delicious and it has everything that I possibly need from a horror movie. And I cannot Mm. wait to talk Mm. about it. The, The flavor, the flavor. Mm, mm, what is that nutmeg delicious <laughs> <laughs> before we dive into this week's episode and flick we're going to be talking about a new segment i'm hoping to introduce on the pod it is going to be our one minute reviews ray and i love to watch things that are outside of the podcast <gasps> what never so <laughs> so it's always fun to talk about them but i'm always nervous about it taking like too much time on the podcast so we are going to be timed. I am going to set a wonderful timer for one minute, and we both get to discuss whatever movie we'd like to as quickly and as best as we can within that minute. Sounds like a plan. Do you want to go Who's first? Who's going first? Go okay, first? Uh, I'll go first. I'll go first. Welcome to One Minute Reviews. Today's contestants. (laughs) 
today's contestant is Raymond. Where are you coming from, Raymond? Who cares? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you fucking bitch. Before we start, what do you what movie are we going to be talking about? This week, I watched Blade for the first time. Wait, is it, is it record scratch. You've never seen Blade. I've never seen Blade. The atrocity that that I, is. It it didn't appeal to me at the time because it's it's sold very much like actiony. It's it, to me in in its advertising it was sold as an action movie with like this vampire edge to it. I didn't get like horror from it. Didn't really pique my interest, but. As the years went on, it became such a big series, and I know it's like a big deal. And Wesley Snipes is kind of groundbreaking for being one of the first like black, like antiheroes almost, or black vampire really. So mm-hmm. you know, I thought I owed it to myself to finally watch. And Richard was like all here for it because he loves the Blade series. Oh, that's so good. Well, we can't wait. The audience can't wait to hear your one minute review. On your marks, get set, review! Blade, for the first time, I think it came out like t- like 20 years ago, 21 Probably, years ago, I think it came out like right, in yeah. 2000. Um, I, great, I, I can't believe I've never seen this before. It's a great vampire flick. It's gory and action packed and graphic almost because I believe it's based on a graphic novel mm-hmm. of some sort, right? Um, and it shows. Marvel. It, yeah, it gives, it has great imagery. It's very bloody. It's what you would expect from like a Marvel vampire flick. It's very dark. I love Wesley Snipes' character and his story so arc good. and how he's, I believe, half vampire and how mm-hmm. he fights the other. It's crazy. It's a crazy storyline. It was a fun ride. And for people who have never seen it, I highly recommend. Wow. Five seconds left. Anything else? I'm ready to watch the rest of the series because I only watched part one. Hell yeah. I think that's a solid ass review out of, I'm not going to ask for your full review just in case we actually do touch on Blade. But <laughs> I dig it. I'm so glad that you finally got to watch it. Yeah, I can't believe I've never watched it, but I'm excited to dive into the rest of the series. So bring it on. I think we watched it on HBO Max. Oh yeah, I think HBO might have all of them. The second one is my absolute favorite. Ooh, I can't wait to see it. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro. Oh, I'm sold already. I'm sold. (laughs) Yeah, he brings some amazing stuff to the series. All right, you ready for your 60 seconds of fame? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Three, two, fun. (laughs) All right, so this week I'm talking about Godzilla versus Kong. Super hyped to watch it. I watched it literally the Friday that it came out. And... (sighs) The story was stupidly convoluted. I didn't need anything to do with the humans. We're all here to watch a giant fucking lizard pretty much beat the shit out of a fucking gorilla or vice versa. (laughs) So the fights that they did have were stellar. I loved the fights that we had. We had like three rounds and I thought they were super cool. My biggest complaint is that we were told we'd get a winner. Girl, who was the winner of this match? Because uh, surprise, a third contestants get brought into the ring like it's WW fucking E in this bitch. <laughs> and it's cool and it adds another layer. I dig, I would recommend, but girl, like cut it. It needs to be cut. I don't need all the human bullshit. Uh, 
Millie Bobby Brown, I love you, but this was not the this was not the thesis. Besides that, please go watch it because you might see a gorilla like try and fuck a, a lizard. That's time. <laughs> a lizard fucking gorilla. Fuck off. Don't, don't get my hopes up on this movie, bitch. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> Love but it. that was it. our new segment of 60 Second Reviews. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. Before we begin this week's flick, we do need to bring up next week's episode. Next week's episode will be a very, very special episode for us here at the Carpenter Queens. Yes, we are having a special, a 420 special and it is going to be our 2021 bongathon. Please help us raise money for new carpeting. Uh, we accidentally burnt way too many holes and there's too many scorch marks from our joints because we were smoking inside. Which is why we're only allowed to smoke outside behind the dumpsters now or in the employee bathroom. <laughs> Not to mention, we also dropped a full gallon of Baja Blast on the carpet and it got really sticky. <laughs> so, <laughs> so please, please, please help us raise money on our 2021 Bongathong. We will be waiting by the phones to help raise money for our new carpeting and please help us ring in the year for our wonderful 420 celebration. I can't wait. I can't wait for our 420 Bongathong and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to get so fucked up. Oh, I'm going to get so stoned. Thank you to everyone who's been commenting on our posts uh, on our Instagram at the Carpenter Queens. Uh, we appreciate everyone contributing their ideas of uh, least favorite stereotypes from stoners, your favorite stoner flicks, favorite stoner characters, your favorite way to smoke. We can't wait to talk about it all. I can't wait to have like a giant sesh with all of our listeners and just talk it's about so everything fun. stony baloney. It's going to be a blast. So get ready for next week's episode. We cannot wait to smoke with y'all virtually. All right, so jumping into this week's movie. This week's featured flick is The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, released in 1982. 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. place to hide so unfortunately it's not available to stream anywhere anywhere which, anywhere which sucks like you can purchase it and rent it but like why isn't this available for the masses to enjoy because this is a fucking wonderful flick it is it's a great movie it's a classic i mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like maybe it's probably it's tied up in like litigation somewhere there's probably Maybe. like some sort of contract about it i feel like because i'm sure that somebody wants to get their hands on the thing i feel like whether amc it, would have it or something either amc or shutter even i feel like shutter would have oh uh, yeah like shutter they could would get totally the rights to it. Off of it 
Mm-hmm. They could probably only get the rights to the prequel. <laughs> <laughs> HBO Max only has the prequel right now, unfortunately. Oh, do they? Yes. Oh, I might go and watch it since I don't think I've ever seen it. <laughs> uh, before we talk about our flick, 420, what you smoking? What did you pair for this week's episode? I, it's getting repetitive at this point, and I'm sorry, guys, that I'm so boring. I just have a lot of flowers stashed here in my cabinet that's so easily accessible. So I literally just smoke bowls all day, every day of whatever flower we get from our plug. And I still have my pen though. And I'm working on my pen of uh, strawberry tart. Mmm, a delicioso. This mm-hmm. week I finally treat, uh, sativa? Sativa hybrid. Ooh, she's fancy. She's on the up and up. Mm-hmm. This week I finally treated myself to like a full bowl of the Botanico weed that I got last week. Hell you yeah. Know when you get- you know when you get a good stash and you're like, mm, 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 I gotta savor this. <laughs> so yeah. I've been mixing it with other stuff to try and savor it. But today I was like, you know what, girl, you did a lot of research. You've been doing your thing. You've been, you know, raising the bar yet again. So treat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I smoked a full bowl of uh, purple sunset and um, some kefir sutherland from the bottom of my grinder so <laughs> yes delicious i also smoke it's a sativa indica i don't know the keef with the keef on top i don't know what the fuck it is <laughs> the keef but, the keef tops it off oh it really does i just know that it helped with the paranoia feeling from today's episode Ooh, the paranoia is real because that's what this movie thrives on. It's more mm-hmm. like it's kind of like a who done it, who's who, can I trust you? It's a wonderful story dealing with paranoia, uh, nihilistic uh, end of the world possibilities, and just a constant wondering of can you trust your neighbors? And mm-hmm. that makes this movie so wonderful to break down. Speaking of the breakdown, let's begin. Released on June 25th, 1982. It has a runtime of about 109 minutes. Give us our taglines, please. Taglines. Anytime, anywhere, anyone. (laughs) You always get so close to the microphone when you're trying to be, like, scary. (laughs) It's not scary or what? (laughs) Oh, wow. Man is the warmest place to hide. Hey, that sounds hey, like no. oddly phallic. Don't we like, know it? Right? <laughs> Very homosexual. <laughs> Look closely at your neighbor. Trust no one. They might be the thing. The ultimate in alien terror. That last one is my favorite. And did you know that was specifically used to capitalize off of the Alien franchise doing so successful <laughs> the, a couple years prior to this film? Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love both these films, The Thing and mm-hmm. Alien. I think they both deliver something very different. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I wouldn't really, it's not fair to compare the two, but I can see why they were like, not pinned against each other, but like, they were also fighting for their time in the spotlight as well. Like, hey, like, we're an alien movie as well, and we have a different story to tell. Get away from her, you bitch! And please keep that in mind, because we will definitely touch on this later. But that comparison is kind of what killed this movie at the box office and gave John Carpenter an unfortunate just time after this movie released. And I really can't wait to talk about that, because it is so unjustified, in my opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, directed by, of course, our one and only John Carpenter. Screenplay, ooh, screenplay by Bill Lancaster, starring the one, the only, uh-huh. the hot, the sexy, the beardsy, the long, luscious haired Kurt the Russell. Daddy. <laughs> Kurt Russell as RJ McCready. McCready. Uh, also known as Mac in the movie. We also have Wilford Brimley as Dr. Blair, T.K. Carter as Nalls, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Child, Richard Durst as Dr. Cooper, Charles Hallen as Vance Norris, Peter Maloney as George Bennings, Richard Muser as Clark, and, uncredited, and of course, an uncredited voice role of the computer by our fucking favorite. The one and only uh, DG, DJ Stevie Wayne, <laughs> Adrian Barbeau. This How is amazing. a stellar cast. It's an amazing cast. It's an amazing cast. And I'm going to keep pushing my theory of this John Carpenter universe. Here we come. Here we have a crossing <laughs> over of Adrian Barbeau, previously credited from John Carpenter's The Fog, who was our final girl Friday not too long ago. Kurt Russell, who's... Funny enough, was just in Escape from New York, literally probably a year or two before they started mm-hmm. filming on this one, which is fantastic. I love their pairing. Anytime they do anything, I'm here for it. Yeah, they work really well together. Mm-hmm. This episode, we are going to be touching a lot on special effects. Without these special effects, I feel like I just would not enjoy the thing nearly as much. Not mm-hmm. saying that the base material isn't fantastic, and it still is. The script is still fantastic. The acting is just phenomenal. But the special effects in this movie just elevate it to a whole other mecca of just superiority in the horror franchise, in the horror community for me. Absolutely. Not only in the horror community, but in the special effects makeup mm-hmm. community. This movie is groundbreaking for that. And the combination of this great uh, script along with these amazing you know, practical effects is what Fantastic. makes this movie such a standout amongst horror and, and specifically like alien horror, which is kind of like mm-hmm. a niche genre within the horror community. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because it is un- it is technically going to be compared to like everything else. It's an alien film. It just kind of happens. We do it all the time. And it, it's not to unjustify the film. But this one in particular, it uses the alien concept to a, to a method and in a, in, in a way that just, it transcends in my opinion. And it, it it's wonderful. I will constantly be gabbing about this movie so i apologize before anything else but special effects makeup was created and designed by rob botten uh rob botten is a carpenter queen alumni previously also talked about in the fog he did the mm-hmm. special effects on that one as well which i also adored i mean and it's great like so going to, when i went to really quickly on a quick tangent if i could um when i went to film school um one of my good friends, Steven, um, he is a fangirl of Chris Nolan. And so he was always talking about that and how I noticed in his filmography, he always uses the same DP, the same actors, the same writers, the same people. And we talked, we touched on it in film school when like a director finds a core group of people that he works really well with, he'll bring them on to almost every project mm-hmm. he does. And that is shown right here through John Carpenter. When you when you find people that you vibe with and that you work with and it shows on screen, you want to bring them onto your other projects because you Absolutely. know they're going to do well. And they're mm-hmm. going to help bring your vision to life, which was proven through, this, through the thing, I believe. Well, thank you for bringing that up because we also 
Carpenter also brings on his former cinematographer from Halloween over onto this one. Uh, Dean Cundy. Dean Cundy. Reviews. IMDb gave it an 8.1 out of 10. That's pretty solid. It's very solid. Uh, Metacritic, 57 out of 100. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes getting 85% on the tomato meter and a 92% audience score. Holy shit. That may be one of our highest. I think so. And box office, it made 19.6 million at box office. Holy shit, that's a lot. Especially for Uh, a movie from 1982. That's not good, Jackie, because when we talk about the budget, it was not worth it in any way. Technically, this movie is regarded quasi as a box office bomb. Look, she's crying. Do you hear her crying? Like we care. I don't give a it didn't make enough to consider it a box office bomb, but it also didn't make enough to consider it a hit or good, which is kind of like a death <laughs> sentence in Hollywood, especially during the 80s. Yeah, definitely. And at this point in his career, John Carpenter is still very much like an independent director. So for him to tank at the box office, it really hurts your career. And it really like it's hard to sell yourself in Hollywood again after doing that. Because that's all they want. That's all they want to look at is your box office record, and that's absolutely true. And so let's dive into this really wild and collaborative production history. It is going to be wonderful. <laughs> let's dive in, guys. First things first, I'm really. The film began production in the mid-1970s, technically. Uh, They wanted it to be more of a faithful adaption of the novella by John W. Campbell Jr., who goes there from 1938. Uh, It would also kind of serve as a remake from the original 1951's The Thing from Another World, and John Carpenter did enjoy that film very much, but he did want to stay closer to the original storyline, and I think Mm. that very much served the overall film. Yeah, I think so as well. I've never seen um, the 1951 thing from another world. I've, mm-hmm. I know John Carpenter enjoys it because it's on the TV playing. It's what they're watching in Halloween 1978. Um, so I know he had a high regard for it. So it totally made sense for him to interpret his own um, version of that. And I think he does it so successfully, even though mm-hmm. the original creator, the the original director and some of the original actors came out when this movie originally premiered that they were not in supportive, that if you wanted to watch essentially like a bastard film, watch this one. <laughs> Nobody asked. It, the, the reviews on this movie were wild, especially compared to now and how it's so well regarded. That's so upsetting. Uh, I had originally gone through several directors and writers who were attached to the film, and it kept moving until Universal eventually got their hold on it, and those the original distributors. Uh, Carpenter was, however, first approached in 1976 by co-producer and friend St- Stuart Cohen, but currently, like you had mentioned, Carpenter was mainly an independent film director at the time, and that kind of hurt him. It hurts no matter what position you're in in the film industry to be independent. I myself Mm -hmm. am am an independent production designer and it's very hard to find work. Like unless you're a union or you're just really good friends with somebody who constantly has work, it's really hard to, you know, to get work to come by. And luckily for me, like I've got a few connections still that every once in a while (laughs) I'll get looped in on a great production, but at least for myself as an independent worker, it's hard to, to come by independent work especially if you're going to be working for a distributor and a production company like universal Mm -hmm. uh, that's something like that they're going to want a little bit more 
like meat to your filmography to make sure that you are dependable to sell tickets, essentially. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Universal ended up going with Texas Chainsaw Massacre's director, Toby Hooper, which is an interesting choice. And I feel like we would have totally had a completely different film. <laughs> completely <laughs> different. Can you imagine if Toby Hooper, excuse me, Toby Hooper like directed the thing? It, I, I'm actually kind of interested to see his take on it. I would love to see it. But unfortunately, <laughs> the producers were not happy with what him and writer Kim Henkel were doing at the time. So they kept moving it around. And after a lot of failed pitches and attempts at new directors, uh, including John Landis, who directed the Thriller music video and An American Werewolf in London, I would have also mm -hmm. loved to see that version of the movie. I would, I would die to see that version of the movie. It'd be great. Uh, but because that also fell through, the project was eventually shelved. And that's never a good thing, but that's also never a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't until Ridley Scott's successful Alien in 1979 that it revitalized the project. And we're going to keep talking about Alien because as great as it was that Alien came out and helped get this project moving again, it also was kind of when at its release, its demise at the same time. The fuck does that mean? At that point, John Carpenter was lightly attached to start maybe directing because Halloween came out in 1978. And mm -hmm. the ultra super successful independent film that Halloween was, of course, a studio is going to look at you. Oh, yeah. Now he's got, you know, the VIP ticket. He's got, mm -hmm. you know, he's got ding, Halloween ding, ding. in his back pocket, bitch. That was a huge, huge, like, sleeper success that nobody saw coming. <sighs> Thank God. Uh, but this would be Carpenter, and he would also bring in his cinematographer from Halloween, Dean Cundy, to be their first big budget project for a major film. Fuck, that's gotta be so terrifying. It's gotta be so terrifying, but it's also gotta be like, it's, it's gotta be really gratifying and really exciting. Like, one of my biggest dreams is to work for Universal Studios one day, oh, whether no. it be like on Halloween Horror Nights or even just work on the back lot on a production. Mm -hmm. If I could just like make it back there one day to do my own thing, that would be like, that's my goal. And so I can only imagine that when John Carpenter got the call or made the deal with Universal and I can, I mean, at least in my eyes, like I would be really excited. And so he probably wanted to share that. I'd shit myself. I'd shit all of it. I'm going to shit all over these walls, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sure he was excited and wanted to bring, you know, his good friend, Dean, who was a great cinematographer on Halloween. Of course, he's going to do an amazing job on the thing. Oh, I know. And he does. The way that he had set up the camera was to try and include a wider lens so that way they can get more individuals in the shot, but also to use this idea of like isolation in camera yeah. to mm -hmm. just give more of that paranoia feel to it. And it's so smart. I love it. Yeah, it was definitely smart to use a wide angle lens because it shows more of your background and your foreground. And so it gives your character, it makes your characters look smaller essentially. So it really mm -hmm. wanted you to give the sense of isolation that they're in middle of nowhere, literally in Antarctica, freezing to death. And it's, it's so efficient because even if you weren't getting that from the dialogue and the characters interacting, you got that from the style and the camera work. And that's just genius. That's just genius. Mm -hmm. It's just good filmmaking. It is good filmmaking. And girl, mm, 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 do you taste that sauce? That's good filmmaking. That's the flavor, girl. So meaty. <laughs> <laughs> Budget. Let's talk about money, 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 money. 
So Money. initially, initially, Universal set a budget of ten million with two hundred thousand dollars for cre- quote unquote creature effects, and with the filming schedule of ninety eight days. Storyboarding and designs were finalized. That creature effect budget ballooned to a whopping seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And then when filming began, the thing had a budget of eleven point four million, and an indirect cost brought it to a whopping fourteen million dollars. This is kind of where things got a little crazy. I can see. <laughs> I get it. The effects budget absolutely started running over budget. It started running over by $1.5 million, and it started to force elimination of certain scenes, uh, one including Nalls confronting like a creature dubbed, quote-unquote, the box thing. Would have loved to seen what the fuck that would have been. And even by the end of it, Carpenter had to make a personal appeal to executive Ned Tannen for an additional $100,000 to complete a simplified version of the Blair thing at the end of the movie. So that brought whoo, our final cost to about 12.4 million and an overhead cost brought it about to 14 to 15 million dollars. We all make choices, but that was a choice. So about Holy $5 million dollars over budget. I mean, these days, that ain't bad. Oh, that but, ain't nothing nowadays. <laughs> for the time, I can, and for an independent film director, should be asking for this much money and should be going over budget this much. I'm surprised that they didn't can his ass. <laughs> You're not wrong, because fuck, man, this ballooned so quickly. But in the defense of Carpenter, yes, I understand your special effects budget cost $1.5 million, but, but Jesus lord mary catherine gallagher it was worth it it was so worth it these effects are still some of my most favorite because i still think they hold up and they're sometimes even better than a lot of effects nowadays oh yeah i would take cheesy practical effects over bad cgi effects any any day any day and like you said i think these effects still hold up and they're iconic in horror history oh yeah Everybody knows, everybody, even if you haven't seen this film, you at least know some of the creatures from this movie because they're so iconic. Or the poster design or, yeah, Mm -hmm. they are referenced. The thing is so ingrained in pop culture. It's unfortunate that at the time that this film was such a dud, almost. Not Mm -hmm. a dud, but like, I mean, it was, it was a dud. It went over on budget, didn't make its money back. And let's keep going on with the notes because... I'm sure there's some redeeming qualities here. Oh, I will find them for you, gal. Don't you (laughs) worry. So we're going to talk about our script. The script was being developed before Carpenter was ever really brought on board. Uh, It included Logan Run's writer, William F. Nolan, which I thought would have been a weird one. Also novelist David Wiltz and uh, whenever Hooper was on there as well. So some drafts included what underwater scenes and also quote moby dick like story in which a character called the captain would battle with a large non-shape shifting creature that sounds awful yeah that sounds a little even for a creature feature this sounds a little far-fetched and, and even why... carpenter said that they were awful <laughs> why why were there underwater scenes is was um was this all taking place in antarctica like nobody wants to go in that icy ass water like, I don't I don't understand where they thought they were going. Were they finding Atlanteans? I don't understand. <laughs> but they found it's... the lost city of Atlantis. 
<laughs> Carpenter agreed. They were awful, and they didn't lean into like the thing's capability to change, which is ridiculous because that's the most interesting fact about this alien. Yeah, it's assimilation. Thank you. Carpenter also did not want to write it himself. And I believe this was his first script that he didn't really write, quote unquote, but he still contributed ideas. Uh, so mm -hmm. Bill Lancaster was brought in. Uh, the original storyline, they altered quite a bit from the novella. Uh, they reduced the number of characters from 37 to 12. Would have Thank just God. been overkill. That would have been too many people to kill, too many people to remember. That's a lot. And it would have it would have taken away from this uh, sense of isolation and desolation that they, they created so well in the film. Because if there's a full community, you ain't going to be scared. But originally, McGrady was a meteorologist, but it was shifted to like a tough loner type. And described in the script, it was a uh, quote. 35, helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, pays good. Unquote. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> That sounds like a character. That's that's really like up for. I think it's because you can only see Kurt Russell playing Mac, but he's so hot. Um, that's very ambiguous, and that mm -hmm. that's good because it gives the actor a lot of wiggle room to put their own stink on it. And I'm sure Kurt Russell put in and laid his stink down. Oh, uh, let me see that stink, you He can lay that stink on me. I would like to see it. <laughs> so Lancaster wrote about 30 to 40 pages but couldn't nail the second act until several months later the script opted to conceal the creature but Botten convinced Carpenter to make it more visible for a larger impact I agree and that's why I think I like this movie because you don't really know what the thing looks like because it's constantly changing shape and when you do see it I, girl even to this day when I was watching it this morning I was like it's still really revolting to look at it's disgusting and horrifying and it's it, oh, it's horrifying to see it like take shape and, and move and just yeah ugh. it's really it still gives me chills oh jesus gross the original ending had both mac and child turned into the thing with the characters being rescued in spring and, and greeting the saviors with hey which way to a quote Hey, which way to a hot meal, end quote. But Carpenter thought it to be a shallow ending and the novella had a clear human winning ending, but Carpenter opted for the ending we know now with the survivors slowly freezing to death to save humanity for the thing, believing this to be a heroic act. I I like the ending. I like I that it's kind of the ending. open-ended and ambiguous. I don't think that this needed a cut and clear ending like, oh, the thing is definitely dead or whatever. I love that it's an open-ended ending and the fans are going crazy still to this day with their own theories oh i know i know and i love seeing all the theories but i'm glad that you brought it up because i really want to talk about it i didn't include it in the notes but i thought it was hilarious at a screening uh carpenter had opened up for like a q a and some audience member had asked him okay so like who was the thing at the end and carpenter had responded it's up to you to decide and the audience member responded back with oh i hate that <laughs> 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 That's awesome. <laughs> was that a queen? I know it's a queen. It was definitely a bothered queen. Like, bitch, just <laughs> spill the tea. Spill the tea. Who is it? <laughs> Give me the cheese, man, por favor. Right? Filming took place between August 24th and 1981 in Juneau, Alaska, and it took about 12 weeks. It was done in segments in Juneau, Alaska, Stewart, British Columbia, and also sets in Los Angeles, California on the wonderful historic 
Universal Studios lot. Oh, I love that lot. <sighs> my favorite. My favorite. That's crazy. I didn't realize that they shot in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. That's how they were getting a lot of those wonderful, like, wide mountain shots. This movie is luscious. I love the shots that they do get of the landscape in this movie. Mm-hmm. The movie was storyboarded so well before filming began that many of the film shots replicate the exact image layouts. Fucking A, way to go, pre-production, man. I love when that shit happens. Yeah, I pre-production gets overlooked a lot and it shows when you're actually on set. So mm-hmm. definitely pre-production plays a vital role in how smoothly your filming goes. And it also helps you stay authentic to the story and what you want to portray. Because I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen plenty of directors and creative people come in fully prepared with storyboards and notes and scripts and things highlighted. And they already have their angle set exactly what they want. And then I've also seen people who can do it on the fly. And sometimes it can go either way, bitch. I was about to say either successfully or not successfully. Yeah, I've seen it both and it doesn't always plan out. So uh, pre-production. Uh, Carpenter had opted for about two weeks of rehearsals to have a better sense of how his scenes wanted to play out. And this was very strange because they were already spending so much money. They're like, why are you spending so much money already? But I think it helped out because these actors, when we get down to it, are so good at interacting with each other. You know that they have these developed characters before they've even come in. And I think that plays to this movie's strength so well. Yeah, they... So you want, they want you to buy that these people live with each other. They work with each Mm -hmm. other. They're with each other 24 seven. I don't think they ever specify how long they've been there unless I'm mistaken, but obviously these people know each other through and through and they have relationships. They have qualms. They have animosity towards each other. So it's it's so good. So it's very believable. And I think that really showed up. I think they benefited from that rehearsal time because they got to develop these characters through and through. It, and I think that pays off, and especially I I watched the movie with a commentary with John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. It was adorable, by the way. They just like fucking love each other. Um, but uh, the, they were also fully isolated when they filmed this. So I think that also helped with their camaraderie and their relationships mm. in the movie. And I think it totally pays off in the end. Yeah, it definitely shows on film. Mm-hmm. Um, besides shooting in other countries, majority of the filming was done. It was moved to the Universal lot where, recordedly, the outside heat reached up to 100 degrees, but they were able to have an internal set being at a controlled 28 degrees. Uh, my nipples are already at full salute. So... For anybody who's worked in the film industry, this is why it helps to like work with, like if you can work at a studio and use a soundstage because you can control the lighting 100%. You can control your weather 100%. You can control everything within this giant warehouse. Obviously it is very expensive to film at Universal Studios, which is why a lot of independent people cannot work there. But if you can, and obviously John Carpenter had the chance and bitch, he took it. He took it. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Take those bull by the horns, girl, and be like, no, I'm filming in a fucking ice block. You got Mm -hmm. this? An ice block if I'm going to do this. Because originally they wanted to build a set inside of an existing like refrigerated structure, but they couldn't find one big enough for their set. You guys wanted to work in an actual fridge? Y'all are going full method <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis shit. All right, everyone. Chill. 
for real but it also helps to keep the set really cold because bitch all those lights you know the sets get hot, hot. I, and so then you hot. have to turn off the air during filming otherwise it's going to pick up the ac on the audio so mm-hmm. it gets really hot on set really fast so i wouldn't i would much rather wear like a huge parka on set than have to strip down to a t-shirt and shorts been in some hot assets and they are not fun because Mm-mm. girls sometimes crew that when they're raising those boom mics that it gets smelly it gets smelly wow you're coming for the sound department <laughs> i know i'm never gonna be hired again fuck him <laughs> he didn't like the sound crew he didn't like the crew camera crew i'm fucked he was commenting on bo <laughs> Continuing on, but instead they collected as many portable uh, air conditioners as they could. They closed off the whole stage and they used humidifiers and misters to add moisture to the air. And it sells it for me, bitch. It sells the fuck out of it for me. Could have fooled me. I didn't clock any of this. I didn't clock that any of it was in a soundstage. I didn't clock it for fucking Canada. I, I was totally sold on the whole vision. I know it's wonderful, but even at one point, Carpenter wasn't happy with some of the films when they were doing a rough cut while they were filming. You know how it is sometimes. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he rewrote some already completed scenes to take place outside when they moved to the location to British Columbia. (laughs) So he was like writing shit on the fly. Get it, gal. I mean, if you're not happy with what you have and you're already spending all this fucking money and you can you're able to like try and fix what you want it worked it fucking worked it did work but you like on the other like on the flip side it sucks to be working on a set like that where things are constantly changing because i know and you know that if we were on that set and i came to set and they're like oh we just tacked on these four extra scenes for today i'm like bit outside i I I built that set over there Uh uh-huh exactly exactly so that's that's movie magic i mean we talked about scream for last week and they were changing ridiculous shit while they were filming so i feel like you get that happens all the time and it just depends on like the spectrum of it are you going to be a scream three and you kind of eat your own tail or are you going to be the thing and like do it as an addition to add another sense of realism and not pull you out because i feel like you that that's too different but i would be pissed if someone came up to me and was like hey these shoots that were already done we're now going to do them outside so get ready to do that makeup outside in fucking freezing temperatures i would have been pissed it's -hmm. annoying and we have both been on sets where that happens i'm sure it happens on every single set and Mm -hmm. that's but this is why carpenter brought on actors and crew members who knew they could brave through it because he's worked with them before so they work well together and they're able to change things on the fly like he needs to do speaking of this crew uh because they wanted authentic locations. And so they brought around roughly 100 American and Canadian crew members when they moved their filming on in around December to these locations. So some crew would stay in like small mining towns during filming while others lived in like residential barges on like whatever canal that they were at. And they would have to make a 27 mile drive up a small winding road to film locations. At one point, the crew bus slid in the snow toward an unprotected edge of the road, nearly sending them down a 500 foot embark. Mm -mm. I am all for being a team member and who got you to finish <laughs> but I, the project? But I draw the line at risking my life. No, 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 mm-hmm. no, no. And on the commentary, I thought it was hilarious because they were so isolated. They couldn't get 
beer, which was apparently the worst part about this filming, was that they couldn't get <laughs> access to beer. I love that. Come on, 1980s. Hey, every crew member has to unwind at the end of the day. You know those, um, Girl, those film days are so long. Especially in this, like, grueling weather. No. Uh, but due to the film being super special effects heavy, the actors had to adapt to having Carpenter describe to them what their characters were kind of looking at, as some effects were added post-production, which is actually far more common nowadays. So I can't imagine that, like, curve in, like, the 1980s of special effects of, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be reacting to. Yeah. Uh, you're an actor. Uh, some puppets were used, but the cast would be probably looking at a wall or an object marked with an X in order to know what their eye line was. I mean, that was very foreshadowing of the direction that special effects are taking in film at this point. I'm like, no, you have to react to green screen nowadays for everything. The Avengers and, aren't even there. A lot of times, a lot of times it's just like a little tennis ball at the end of a stick. So what is the truth? Special effects are the mecca for this fucking movie. Holy crap. In my, It's one of the shining glory moments in this movie. Uh, like we said, it was designed by Rob Botton, and he was only around 21 or 22 years old when he started doing this. I couldn't uh. even, excuse me, I cried when I got my first driving ticket when I was 21. <laughs> and he's over here doing this? That's insane. I can't believe how young he was and not even i feel like he just kind of went in there not knowing and it was just like all right i'm a special effects artist and <laughs> this is what we're gonna do well it kind of almost literally killed him when he was brought on pre-production was in progress but there really wasn't a design that they had like settled on so he started coming up with a lot of weird crazy shit and carpenter never told him no so botten was always worried that, that was gonna happen uh but when they finally narrowed it down um at one point, Botten had a crew of like 35 person crew of artists and technicians, and he found it Jesus. really difficult. Exactly. And he was also hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer. Oh my God. Yes, because he had caused himself by extensive workload. He had essentially taken it upon himself to try and do everything on his own, and that's what took him out. It saw him essentially spending a full year literally living on the Universal Studios lot, never taking a day off, and sleeping on the sets or in locker rooms. Holy crap, <gasps> Button. That mm -hmm. is quite the commitment to a production. Uh, it almost sounds toxic in all honesty. <laughs> Well, as I don't think I... it was, like, pressure. I mean, I'm sure there was pressure. I'm sure there was pressure from this movie. But, like, it kind of sounds like Botten was so young and he didn't know how to delegate this ginormous crew that he mm -hmm. literally worked himself into the hospital. Wow, kudos. I mean, I'm not saying that every artist should take themselves to the breaking point, but I'm the fact that he took himself to the breaking point and still delivered an amazing product shows like the the lengths that artists are willing to go mm -hmm. for their art and it it pays off because everyone thought it wasn't like the special effects were noteworthy and spectacular but super gross and disgusting that's kind of the fucking point uh, button explained you're missing that, the whole point here that, girl you're missing the whole fucking point button explained that the creature had been all over the galaxy allowing it to take in like these parts from this character, these parts from this stomach. I want this eye, these spider legs, which is why when we get it, every time it like sprouts different things, it's fucking 
foul, but as like a preemptive move against any censorships, uh, Botten suggested that they make the creatures violent transformations and the appearance of internal organs is like more fantastical and using a lot of color. And mm -hmm. that works so well against the color palette of this movie. Yeah, because the color palette is also like, obviously a lot of white and blues because in the middle of Antarctica and it's cold. So it's very desolate and bleak. And so when you finally get the creature and you start seeing its insides and its uh, transformations, <laughs> they're very brightly colored. And like you said, it works really get, excuse me, it works really well against the palette of our like setting and our background. It, it it brings it to like this other universe and it's disgusting. The creature mm -hmm. effects were used of like a bunch of different materials. Uh, we got mayonnaise in there. We got Ooh. cream corn in there. We got microwave bubble gum and the wonderful KY jelly, which was also oozed all over Alien in the movie Aliens. It's just, it's got so many purposes, KY jelly. But, <laughs> uh, I love that. This, see, this is why we love practical effects. Like, come mm -hmm. on. They used mayonnaise, cream corn, bubble gum, and KY jelly to make an alien. Granted, that's not all the alien was made out of, but they used that to sell this vision of this disgusting alien. And that's amazing to me that you can use these everyday products and fool people into thinking that this thing is otherworldly. And it totally pays off. These, the, this design is ridiculous because it has not aged, in my opinion. There's a few things here and there, like when they play things in reverse to make things grow or mm -hmm. wild shit like that. But the the chest chomping scene bit mm -hmm. is spectacular. And when his head rips apart from his body and goes onto the floor and turns into that weird crabby thing mm -hmm. those special effects still freak me out to this day they still hold up fantastic fantastic and i would love to like hold it up to a comparison to like computer graphics and every day i will pick those practicals every day uh, absolutely and even though the actors didn't get to like see and really interact with them, I kind of wish they had because then I feel like you would have gotten, and not to say that these um, performances weren't great, but I'm just saying you might have gotten a more authentic reaction and performance yeah. on camera than what we got. But that's not to not to take away from the performance that we did get because it's spectacular. Oh yeah, absolutely. So while Botten was not doing well and to ease off some pressure, Stan Winston was brought in to do some designs mainly mm -hmm. the dog thing one of the best fucking puppets in that whole movie uh but without a lot of time to do anything winston decided to create a fucking hand puppet instead of like making like a super mechanical creature come on i love that even like when things are nitty-gritty using the classic just a hand puppet that <laughs> gets you through. that's so sick hey you gotta do what you know and use what you got to get the project done and it fucking worked and it absolutely I, worked. I feel like at one point you can kind of see that it's a puppet but it doesn't take away from the movie and you're still at least i was so very wrapped up in the moment that i was just like horrified to see because oh, no. everybody hates to see the dog die in the movie everybody and you know what's gonna happen oh they kill they literally kill all the dogs in this movie at the beginning <laughs> I know, I know, but uh, 
also including the infamous chest chomping scene, but Button recruited a double amputee and fit him with prosthetic arms that were filled with wax bones, rubber veins, and fucking red jello. So the arms were then placed inside an actual practical stomach mouth where the mechanical jaws clamped down on them. And once the, they called action and the actor pulled away, it got, gave us that wonderful special effect because it still makes me cringe. It's so good. And even though it's aged a little bit and you can obviously tell that it's a practical effect, it still gets you. Like you're not- wins. You still wins, man. <laughs> yeah, and not only that, for if, if you've never seen this movie and you see that scene for the first time, it's gonna get you because you don't see it coming at all. They don't set anything up for it. It's a total, almost jump scare. It's like a rug pulled out under you and you just have to fucking catch your feet, gal, because it's- uh-huh. Wild. This was John's first time watching this one because our first date was the prequel, the thing, when we first got together. So technically, this was their first view on it. And when that scene came up, all it was an audible. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's fantastic. Uh, The only other things that I really have for notes, because we'll talk about reviews later on. Um, The team originally wanted to shoot in black and white, but Universal pushed back against it because it would have affected their ability to sell the television rights. So instead of doing that, Cudney decided to suggest muting the tones as much as possible, which is why I brought up our wonderful color palette. But neutral colors were used, such as like all the grays, even going as far as like painting a lot of the pop props gray, while the costumes used a lot of browns, light blues, grays, and they relied on lighting main as their main source of color which is why we get those like crazy like electric blues and those oranges Mm -hmm. and those vibrant reds because when they pop they fucking pop on this screen it's wonderful they do and you know i never really it's not that i didn't notice it but i'm like now that you were mentioning it we're talking about it it really does and and Mm -hmm. i love films that use cinematography and lighting as such like as it's such an underutilized tool sometimes it really is like I feel like these days everybody wants to rely on effects and filters and doing everything in post but honestly like lighting and great cinematography will take you way farther than fixing something in post because I feel like that's more more memorable because when you're trying to use an effect you're trying to create a spectacle while you're when you're doing lighting and cinematography you're creating a mood and a feeling Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. far more effective in the long run exactly did you want to give us our cool fact? Because I thought it was really awesome. <laughs> okay, so our cool fact for this movie is on its opening day, a special screening was held at the Hollywood Pacific Theater, presided over by none other than Elvira, Mistress of the Dark herself, with free admission for those who came in costumes as monsters. That's so fucking cool. Gagatrandra. I would have <laughs> loved love to go to this Elvira I'm still so upset that I haven't seen her in any way shape or form because she is so gorgeous to me that is like the epitome of beauty like that is that is gorge that is I love Elvira and I had the gracious opportunity to see her in her last uh show at not scary farm a couple years back and I'm sad I didn't get to see her I think she performed she's performed there quite a few times but I didn't get to see her like the year previous. So I made sure I saw her on her last show and it was so good. So good. <laughs> she still got it. She still got it. Oh, she's never lost it. She's never <laughs> Stella lost her groove or have to get her groove back. She's always had it. She's got a point. She's an icon. 
She's a legend, and she is the moment. Now, come on now. Um, <laughs> so before we dive deep into my story and talk about our wonderful feelings on this movie, we're going to take a quick break. We open straight out the gate, and we get an alien spaceship crash landing in Antarctica, and we get the sickest fucking opening title the thing which was used by putting it in like a fish tank and using a plastic bag and smoke and then essentially lighting it on fire to match up the thing writing it's so fucking rad it is so cool really that's how they came that's how they got the opening title card it's that's fucking, fucking crazy sick Did, man 1980s like horror technology at its finest it still holds up i love that opening sequence it's one of my favorites yeah, because it's still around the time where your like special effects aren't heavy, computers are barely becoming a thing. So you had to use the old school way of doing things and finding a new way to get the effects that you wanted. And obviously it worked. Oh, it absolutely works. I think it just sets this mood of like an otherworldly, mysterious adventure you're about to go on. From mm-hmm. there, we go to Antarctica and a Norwegian helicopter is pursuing the cutest little husky doggy that's like running through the snow and it's fucking shooting at that motherfucker horribly, I might add. Yeah, I mean, I'm no gun expert, but they are missing horribly. So the slug dog makes its way to the American research station where we get introduced to pretty much all of our characters where all of this is happening. Uh, McCready, Blair, Nalls, Palmer, Childs, blah, 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 blah. We'll talk about them as we go along. Uh, so once they get there, they notice all of this crazy commotion going on and the Norwegians land their helicopter and still keep trying to shoot at this dog and accidentally shoot, uh, what's his face, Palmer, I think? I don't know. One uh, of them. One of them. <laughs> When I first watched it, I didn't get it because that's when the Norwegian takes, like, the bomb and he, like, tries to throw the grenade and it, like, slips out of his foot. Yeah, he accidentally, like, loses his grip on it and throws it behind him. Like, what a (laughs) queer move. Was he queer? Like, he looks like he's never played baseball. It's like, uh. Uh. So, yeah, he actually throws it behind him and so his partner moves ahead to chase the dog while he runs back to go try and grab the grenade and when he does he's like looking for it looking for it and he blows himself and the helicopter up because he doesn't find it i know and then in defense because the americans are like what the fuck were you guys shooting at us and trying to kill us uh the commander gary ends up who's badass by the way because without even thinking he like breaks that window goes in he's like bang 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 bang. yeah i and he shoots i mean we're in the the antarctica i wouldn't have i wouldn't have broken the window and honestly now you're just letting in all the cold air but whatever he ends up shooting the guy in the i'm taking the window dumbass So they end up taking in the dog because it's a fucking dog. I mean, I would take in any stranded dog and I wouldn't understand what's going on. So they understand what's happening. And so heads up, we're going to cut through this because this is, it's a fairly long movie. It's close Mm -hmm. to a two hour long film. And I don't want to bore everybody with beat by beat by beat. 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 So I'm going to try and motor through this so we can talk about our favorite parts. And honestly, just like the fantastic pieces of this movie. So. We find out that McGrady is a helicopter pilot. He takes their Dr. Cooper over to leave to the Norwegian base where they find like these most fucked up dead frozen corpses and a block of ice that had been broken out. And there's no explanation what's to happen and technically until the prequel comes out and we find out what actually happens. Mm-hmm. But 
this is my favorite part about this movie is that nothing is ever really laid out for you. And we've talked about this in The Strangers and other movies like this. They're my favorite style of story writing where you are given plot devices that you know happened and it's up to you to try and figure out what happened. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So they pull up, they see this charred... I won't even call it a body or a skeleton. It's this weird anamorphic blob thing. And so they see that and they deduce that it's obviously been, they they burned it with fire. And so they make their way in. Like you said, they see the like Encino man block of ice where some creature (laughs) broke out of it. It's Brendan Fraser. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they see the block of ice and then I, if I'm not mistaken, don't they also make their way to the back and they see that the dogs, the dogs that they had there were also attacked? I believe so. Yes, maybe. I think so. Because the biggest things that I t- the biggest things that stand out for me in this whole sequence is the frozen corpse of the guy that slit his wrists and the blood is frozen. For me, mm. that is the creepiest part about that scene is the fact that he's frozen over and the blood's still dripping and it... Mm. Ugh, it's a wonderful effect it gives me it still gives me chills and it it definitely conveys the fact that he would have rather taken his own life than let this thing take over him it's 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 macabre that's the best way i can describe it it is like such Good a macabre word. scene and carpenter is so excellent at displaying just this mystery that you want solved not because you want it figured out but because you're so disturbed by what you're looking at Yes, it's very much that. And he's so good at it. He's so good at it. Uh, From there, they take what they find back to their biologist, Blair, and they perform an autopsy on whatever the fuck they're looking at. And they find a normal set, kind of, of human organs inside Mm -hmm. of it. The small details, the small details. When they bring this body onto the slab and it's steaming because how hot it is to compare to where it was outside, I uh-huh. cannot imagine just like the smell and the rancid, just like disgustingness of it all. Well, it was fucking one of yes. Disgusting. Yeah, it definitely paints a very vivid picture of what's about to take place. And I. So I get that they're scientists and they have like a goal at hand. I just can't believe that they brought back this thing they- that they don't know what it is. <laughs> they brought it back to their lab. Oh yeah, like let's dissect it. Like what? No, 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 no. Go lock that thing in the barn outside and go dissect that shit a couple miles away from <laughs> us. What the fuck is wrong with you? It's it's very odd. It is. I wouldn't really consider it like a plot hole or like a why are you doing that? Because in all honesty, like what the fuck else are you going to be doing up in this Antarctic bitch? Yeah. And I, I'm sure that's what they're there for. They're to, they're there to do something. Obviously they have some sort of goal there. So why not dissect this alien corpse, I guess? Well, you're also like, now you're involved in some shit because some random Norwegians came over and started shooting you up. I'd want to know what's going on too. And if I were to find that's this wrong crazy shit, I guess I would understand since they're all like biologists and they're there to study. I guess it's just kind of their nature to be like, this is something that I would, I want to understand what's happening. So that makes Mm -hmm. sense to me. And I think that's part of the reason why I like these characters. They're not like most horror characters where they're both not reacting. They are reacting to things around them, but they're not reacting to things around them stupidly or they're making (laughs) stupid reactionary stuff. Because as it progresses and the paranoia like amplifies, I feel like those are 
actual human reactions we'd see from a group of men who were faced with the situation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And for the most part, I think they react well and they mm-hmm. take they take the proper precautions and make the right choices for the most part to make sure that they stay alive until they don't. Isn't that sad? Yes! Don't we just hate that? Yes! Don't we wish they would just die? Yes! Oh, no, we don't. Clark kennels the sled dog and it soon starts fucking like... How would how do you describe how do you describe what the fuck that dog does? It's a very disturbing scene in my opinion because I love dogs. <laughs> and to see like as soon as they put the dog in that kennel, the other dogs immediately know that it's not a dog, that something's wrong oh, with yeah. it because they stay away from it. They're snarling at it, they're growling at it, and then the dog just starts like convulsing almost. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. then it does this like disgusting split at the head where it kind of um blooms like a flower and it exposes like it's his anal gland. Oh, shut up. <laughs> but it like exposes his skull. It exposes his skull and it looks disgusting. And then the, it just starts attacking the other dogs. Like his little tentacles come out and it attaches to the other dogs. And it just becomes a bloodbath at that point. And, and it like starts like absorbing and like pulling in these poor dogs. And it's it's so, it sucks to watch because nobody wants to see a dog die. Anytime no. that you kill a dog or like a kid, you're in like, everyone's like, oh, this movie's serious. And this movie's uh-huh. fucking serious because we get like whimpering dogs that like, I, I there's a shot at one point because the all of this noise, it starts freaking out the team and McGrady like sets off the alarm to like get everyone. And we end up getting child getting a flamethrower to like, like blow that bitch up but Mm. at one point before they burn it they shoot the dogs just like out of mercy because as it's pulling it in we get the worst and best sound design of like these dogs whimpering and it's just uh, it's so disturbing crunching oh oh it's so disturbing to watch it's so disturbing to watch yeah and what's face the Whoever is like the dog handler there obviously has a soft spot for the dogs. Yeah. Yeah, And he loses his shit because literally all the dogs are wiped out in a matter of like two minutes. I think like a few, we still keep a few because later on when Blair ends up going on like a weird like tangent thing where he's like blowing everything up, he ends up killing Mm -hmm. like the remaining sled dogs. So we do save some, but we end up killing them anyway. Carpenter don't give a (laughs) your dogs he'll give a clearly your dog. <laughs> uh from there blair autopsies the new fucking creature and i think it's smart because i think a biologist would know what's going on i don't not believe that he like all of a sudden has this information i think it makes sense from what they have and they like deduce that it's trying to imitate whatever it gets a hold of and that it takes you over and it wherever they caught this weird new gross dog thing it was in mid transformation so it's fucking foul and it starts setting up the the whole premise of oh this thing can take over anyone who can i trust now and that is the main theme of this whole movie and it it that little inkling starts blossoming into like <laughs> the worst like summer camp experience ever yeah that's a perfect way of putting it it like it sets like this rippling effect that Mm -hmm. makes everyone paranoid nobody trusts each other anymore because this thing can take over any sort of not just animal but any sort of human being really 
And so everybody's starting to get really worried and it sets this tone of paranoia and desolation and oh it's just I feel I feel like for the characters in that moment they are aware of where they're at and their isolation living in Atlant in Atlantica <laughs> in Antarctica uh, because the, they had dropped a line earlier before it's really quick and easy to miss but they had been trying to contact other stations for like two weeks now and it's probably mm -hmm. due to this thingamabob thing but uh I feel like for the rest of the characters, when they start realizing they can't trust anyone, I feel like for some reason, it just kind of all sets in for all of them. Fuck, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the middle of nowhere. Who can I trust? And it, I would go crazy. This is like RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, the, who's the lip sync ass assassin edition? Like, I would love to watch the season of Drag Race. <laughs> yeah, it's... <sighs> this is where things start to, like go awry if you will this is where things definitely take a turn and nothing is as bad as it seems mm -hmm. and this is where things start to get really ambiguous where you're starting to see it's kind of like a who's done it and there's like red herring almost so let's go on this wild ride bitch i know because from here they go back to try and figure out what the norwegians were looking at and they end up finding this ginormous and it, this is the only part that doesn't make sense to me but it is 1982 so i'm not gonna try and poke a hole in it but they discovered this large ex excavation site that had a giant alien buried spaceship and like the small little spot where they ended up digging out the alien and they deduced that the alien probably fell out of the ship when it crash landed and it's mm -hmm. been frozen this whole time and the fucking Norwegians opened it up and now it's doing all this shit. So they think it's like 100,000 years old or whatever and I guess that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Whatever, you guys are scientists, you know more than <laughs> That's my only plot hole for me. It's just like, nobody noticed this giant fucking spaceship, but it is Antarctica. It is 1980s. So I'll take it. Not only that, I feel like, and that's not to like slap a stereotype on anybody, but I feel like scientists or people who go looking for something, when they finally find something or anything really, that's where the search stops. They're not going to move any mm -hmm. further than that. So the fact that they found this alien in a block of ice, they're like, oh, let's stop digging right here. This is, we found what we were looking for and they pulled it out. Had they just just went a couple feet further, they would have found the fucking humongous spaceship that it flew out of. So or want I something from the spaceship. I feel like I would want something from the spaceship over like clearly dormant creature that you know nothing about. That could still be alive, but like I said, they were not in the right headspace. They're probably just so excited that they found something, and let's go see what this thing is made of. And that makes sense, but they also deduce that because of what's happening and the way that it's spreading, they deduce that the thing will probably take over and assimilate all of the earth in just like a matter of years. So they all just take the decision to like, okay, we have to figure this out or else it will get out into the outside world. And that is so interesting to look at, especially in the lens of the Cold War was still happening during this time period. So this idea and concept of not trusting your neighbors and also during this time period, which we'll touch on just a little bit more later on, America was just coming out of a recession. So it was a really negative time period. And I think all of that cumulating together really blends into a really thought out smart script that was talking about the time period and could even mm -hmm. be talking about now. This could totally play in COVID Psalms era. Like you can't hang out with anyone. You can't trust yeah. anyone. 
So it totally plays in. And I think it's, it's, it's genius. I love watching character studies of people just like, how would humans react? And I feel like this is probably how, exactly how humans would react in a situation like this. <laughs> yeah, Maybe definitely. even worse. Oh, I 100% believe that. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> it would have been worse. I feel like if this were made today, everyone would have been, everyone would have been dead within the first 30 seconds of this movie. <laughs> it's a 100%. Short film. Yeah, <laughs> short, silent film. We get Windows and Bennings trying to put the fucking fucked up bodies away. Windows goes away for a little bit and then Bennings essentially gets taken over. Windows freaks out and tries to go get someone to get them. And when they come back, he's gone. Oh my God, he's all gone. But of course, McGretty is ready to start burning shit up. And that's when we get Blair get his fucking freak out and starts sabotaging all the vehicles, like destroying all of their computer stuff. This is when he also kills the remaining sled dogs and that's fucking sucks. And then destroys the radio to get them from like not leaving. And we get that shuffle between everyone. And mm-hmm. it, fuck, man, I would have popped this bitch in the fit. I would have decked her twice. I I don't know why they just didn't shoot him or whatever. Like clearly I would have sh- sabot- shot him. Clearly he was sabotaging the entire lab or wherever the fuck they work or whatever you want to call it. And he was sabotaging any form of communication they had. He killed the dogs. He was he was sabotaging everybody. He was setting them up to die. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know why they just didn't shoot him. Because I would have. Like it's either me or you and it's going to be you. Exactly. And they ended up just throwing him in the shed anyway. But they also try to get a new blood test that gets involved and it they have to get samples of the blood and it's held in a storage, but it's been tampered with. So it just keeps elevating this idea of paranoia and who is it? Because they understand that somebody here is the thing. And now mm. who can you trust when everything goes forward? If you were an adult, who would you believe? Huh? Who would you believe? Who would you believe? Who would you believe? the desperation just like settles at that point because that's when they decide to do the other blood tests but they figure out that everything's fucked up and it it just it just gets bleaker and bleaker as the movie progresses and that i kind of like that out of my horror movies i really like those bleak like we're not getting out of here alive because for some reason for me that's realistic no i feel that same way too like a lot of these times, like, don't get me wrong, I love movies that put characters in these, like, fantastical situations mm-hmm. and they somehow make it out alive. But on the other side, like, I also love gritty, realistic horror movies, like The Strangers or like this, where it's not everybody makes it out and sometimes these tragic things really happen. Not, like, to be sad, TM, or anything, but, like... For, for some reason those movies they stick harder with me because I love I love me a good slasher and I love me a good final girl but not every makes it out not everybody makes it out alive in every situation darling mm-hmm 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 from there McCready Windows and Nalls find Fouch's burnt corpse and they kind of figure out that he committed suicide maybe to avoid like fully transforming into one of them and it's another one of those moments in the script where you decide it's ambiguous and I mm-hmm. I it, 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 it works. It, it just keeps building the tension to a point where you're just, you question everything and everyone. Even yeah, as it, uh-huh. yeah, it totally, like, it just keeps building on this paranoia and this sense of amb- amb- 
ambiguity that you don't know what's going on. And I love that because you can't be everywhere at every moment and you can't see what's happening here and over there at the same time. And yeah, well, well a lot of movies like to show you everything that's happening. Like, like we said Ghost multiple times. Because Ghost of yeah. Mars cut back to try and show everything. And exactly. And it's so funny that John Carpenter made both of them. Both. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's not necessary and it it makes you as an audience member an active participant and that's what i need out of my movies because from there windows returns back to the base and he kind of has a fucking freak out while mccrady and nulls are investigating uh mccrady's shack when they get back nulls abandons mccrady in a snowstorm believing that like he's probably the you're the one bitch you're the one and he finds his torn clothes in the shack so they all start debating if mccrady's the bad guy and for me as an audience member it was like a 180 because up to this point they believe him as the captain and everything's mm -hmm. good but because of this one small shred of maybe evidence it mm -hmm. turns on them and girl if that ain't some lord of the flies real straight <laughs> bullshit i don't know what is because i believe all of that straighties are oh sorry straight hetero whatever are always pulling <laughs> shit like that on each other they turn him so quick and it like you said it just kind of adds to this like free for all like every man for yeah, himself yes yes exactly that mm -hmm. and so it just heightens the situations and it makes it builds for great tension that just translates into the next scene where they mm -hmm. start testing everyone's blood and it's so effective and so well done Oh, I want to talk about that immediately because the biggest thing out of that is that they try to get McGrady, but he ends up like essentially holding them hostage by maybe exploding everybody up. And during that, mm -hmm. they try to take over again. And this is when Norris suffers a heart attack. He suffers a heart <laughs> attack and he dies, which kind of sucks. Like it's the worst death out of the whole movie. I'm even okay with like the off screen deaths, but this one sucks. <laughs> It does suck. It totally feels out of place. Like everybody else got these cool, awesome deaths. Even if they were off screen, they somewhat had to do with the thing. And this guy just suffered a, a plain old heart attack. Go running, gal. <laughs> Cooper tries to use a defibrillator on Norris, but this is when we get, I don't care that, I do care that he dies from a heart attack because it's kind of lame. But because of that heart attack, we get my favorite death in the whole fucking movie is when Cooper tries to go in and use the defibrillator and his chest fucking opens up to this giant mouth and rips off Cooper's hands, killing him. Like, of course he kills him. And McCrady ignites that fucker. And it's, it just gets worse and worse because Norris like grows like a weird giraffe head that like claws to the, to the ceiling that catches yeah. on fire. But also his other head starts ripping and d falling off of the table and then uses <laughs> its tongue. Like, this is so hard to describe. Using its tongue to, like, get itself across the floor and mm -hmm. then develops crab-like gross fucking feet thing. And, of course, McCready's like, uh, fuck no. And then blunts that motherfucker and burns her up to smithereens. It is wild like while these interactions with the thing are kind of few and far apart in between these scenes we build this tension and we build like we've kept saying we build this tension and the sense of ambiguity in between scenes so that when we finally get to these creature scenes they are huge and dramatic and so out otherworldly that it pays off and it makes oh, you want to keep going so this, good 
John Carpenter is such a good filmmaker and he knows how to pace himself and how mm-hmm. to pace his movie that he builds up to this like climax. And this is just like one of those like great moments in this movie where it raises the stakes and it pushes the story forward. In such an extravagant and exhilarating way because it is so grotesque. It is so disturbing to watch. It is like a catharsis of all this like pent up aggression that you've been feeling so far. And then Mm. this thing just comes out and causes all of this destruction. And after this, we get my favorite sequence in the whole movie because after he burns that motherfucker to, you know, to smithereens, he's also forced to kill Clark in like self-defense when he lunges at him with a knife and all that. And they Mm -hmm. have to start trying to figure out how this is happening because uh, it, it, when the thing's head falls off, it just shows that this fucking creature is just trying to survive, which I think makes it so scary. Because when an animal is scared and trying to survive, it will do anything to survive. Yeah. And so that's essentially what it's doing. It needs a host. It needs something to mimic in order to get by. Like, I think, like, if you almost want to like put yourself in the alien shoes, like you would do anything to survive as well. So do you think there's stilettos? It, you stupid fucking bitch. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> They're hot pink stilettos. <laughs> but it, it's, it's excellent because they now deduce that this thing is just trying to survive and it keeps evolving. D- McCready sets up the blood test, which can also be alluded to and has been studied as the HIV virus and the fear of figuring out that you have this virus because this mm-hmm. whole scene is beautifully tense and it builds because they tie all up their, their suspected aliens and they start running a hot wire through the blood samples just mm-hmm. trying to figure out who is the thing. We figure out McGrady's, McGrady's fine. He's good. Uh, Nulls and Gary are good. But when we get it on Palmer, we figure out that Palmer, when he sets that thing on him and it like, <laughs> for some reason I thought of like, uh, do you remember the Gushers commercials when you eat a Gusher and then your head would turn into a fruit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of saw that when he like hits the blood and it just like freaks out and transform. Cause then we get like nightmare induced Palmer like starting to transform while they're all still tied up and everyone doesn't Mm -hmm. know what to do. It is so wonderfully choreographed and it's disgusting because Palmer then takes windows and like opens up his head and chomps on him and throws him It's just, it's so fucking good, everyone. I have said that so many times and I will (laughs) say it again because McCarty is forced to burn everyone and it just continues and we deduce who's done, but Carpenter is so excellent at knowing when to, we need these tense moments to give us the payoff of the thing. And you touched on that and it it works because we figure out who isn't the alien and we decide that we have to figure some shit out. So Childs is left on guard while everyone else tries to go get a test on Blair who's still holed up. And of Mm -hmm. course, Blair isn't there. Of course, Blair is the alien. If you didn't think Blair was the alien, I don't know what to tell you, gal. (laughs) Hold on really quick before we move on. I want to touch really back really quick on the whole blood test thing because it's really interesting that you brought up 
that this was kind of reminiscent of what was happening at the time because this was in the early 80s so this was really the time that AIDS was a global pandemic and everyone especially becoming like yeah it was definitely getting there and I don't know that's really telling I never thought about it through that lens I never put two and two together but it kind of does give you that sense of dread of being tested or and finding out you have this virus this uh, this thing that's that's trying to essentially assimilate you and destroy you from the inside out that's really interesting like I never put those two together and I never thought about seeing it through that lens because as a a gay man and as anybody I'm almost the queer community can attest to like you know at least when we're single and we're out being you know living our lives as i will say living la vida um, luca you know we have to go and get tested and we have to make sure we don't have things like aids or any stds or stis and everybody's had that scare everybody's had that scare mm-hmm. where they either think they've they're pregnant or they think they have some sort of uh sti scd or even the dreaded hiv you know it's it's a scary moment and i'm sure everybody's had that scary moment where they're sitting there waiting in the waiting room for their test results so mm-hmm. I never attributed that whole blood testing scene with that, and it's blowing my mind right now. Oh my god! Wow! I love that. See, this I love talking about horror, but it, it's it works so well, and just brava, brava to the scriptwriters and everyone mm-hmm. involved in this production because. If I can dissect your film and get different feelings and different answers and find new things out every single time that I watch your movie, that is a piece of film history right there. Yes. Yes. We figure out that Blair has been building a fucking saucer because, of course, on the return, child goes missing and all of a sudden the power generator is destroyed and McCrady speculates that the thing is wanting to go back to sleep so that way we can get a return team to come grab them. Fucking smart. Mm -hmm. McCrady, you're smart. The thing's smart. Everybody's smart. McCrady, Gary, and Nulls decide to, they have to, you know what, how are we going to fight the thing? We got to blow the thing up. Which is so American, and I love it. Just <laughs> <laughs> blow some shit up. But in all honesty, like I feel like that would be the only way to get rid of it because you can't let it freeze. Obviously, they know they're gonna die. They know they're yeah. gonna die. There's no way out of this. No. So they're like, let's take this thing with us. Should I would too? Fuck you and your mom. The end of the day, it doesn't matter. Okay, the bitch is safe. Leave her the fuck alone. Like, I, like, I'm gonna worry about Heidi right now. Okay. Like I think you, 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 you. you, you so they start blowing up this this facility literally room by room but blair ends up killing gary and then all of a sudden nulls disappears and we don't ever really get an answer to what happened to them we just assume that i'm pretty sure they're dead i'm pretty sure mm-hmm. but uh it trans the thing transforms into this giant fucking monster thing this like final boss level type of design final round Fight. Pretty uh, much. It's uh, the big boss of the level. Exactly. And Blair blows it up with a fucking detonator. And uh, he triggers the explosives using a dynamite and blows this whole fucking base to smithereens, like Michael Bay style, with multiple different explosion shots. <laughs> it, it's fucking sick. It's like a, it's so interesting because we've had such like a slow burn, like, deeply disturbing horror movie and at the end we slightly get like a kurt russell classic action movie i love it i love it it's a good like culmination of all the tension that was built over this movie 
I really like it. And it's just Kurt Russell being fucking Kurt Russell. Listen, I would start a whole podcast dedicated to Kurt Russell if I could. Because as I was explaining to John when we were watching, I was like, Kurt Russell is just like the ultimate like 1980s macho, suave, burly, mm-hmm. like grizzly, just like <sighs> me. Just like me kurt russell especially in this movie he Ugh. is like peak hotness for me with that beard in this movie it apparently took him a year to grow all that out we love the dedication it was it's a beautiful beard so it is i'm not mad beard. at it <laughs> uh mccrady sits as this fucking station burns and childs all of a sudden pops out saying he became lost when the storm happened trying to follow blair uh but they're both exhausted and they're freezing to death and they just acknowledge to each other that like i don't trust you you don't trust me but let's drink together while we freeze to death and that's where Mm -hmm. the film ends it's very bleak and open-ended and i'm sure most of the audience didn't appreciate that they didn't get like a nice little bow ending Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it just lends itself so well to an open ending. And there's been so many fan theories since this movie premiered about who who is really infected and just so many dissections in this movie already as it is. Do and you I, believe that Childs is the thing at the end of the from movie? From what I've seen and from what I've gathered from fan theories, I believe that Childs was the thing because... And this is just me taking it for face value like on on screen Kurt Russell you could see his breath and child had none and for me that was like the determining factor Mm -hmm. and I know it's been brought up it's been brought up that it wasn't done on purpose it was just kind of like a mistake that they had made but that's in the film now like it is now Mm -hmm. part of what you've created and I also choose to believe that child is the thing at the end because that's hard to ignore and I feel like it's even if it wasn't intentional and I feel like that happens a lot for film that people are like oh this means this I know it's not intentional, but it's there now in your piece. And if I guess if someone wants to absorb it that way, I'm going to choose to absorb it that way. And Childs is Mm -hmm. definitely the thing. He's absolutely the thing. (laughs) 100% always a thing in my eyes. So before we give our final reviews on these, I want to talk about the reviews at the time. And I'll do it really quickly. So when this came out, just an example, Cinefantastique had printed an issue with the thing on the cover asking, is this the most hated movie of all time? Jeez. So we talked about Alien. Also, that needs to be talked about was that the thing, unfortunately, was going up against E.T., the extraterrestrial, at the time <laughs> of its release, which was a critical and commercial darling, darling. It was making like $619 million at the fucking box office. So it was really bad because when this came out, aliens were being perceived as like cute, wonderful, like family time things. And then here comes the thing with its depressing style with its uh, open, ambiguous ending. And it also got compared to Alien a lot. And because it Mm -hmm. wasn't as successful as Alien, it was just redeemed as like a dud. Also, fun fact, Blade Runner came out the same weekend that The Thing came out and Blade Runner suffers the same fate as being like a box office bomb and being slandered at the box office, but now is regarded as a well, wonderful classic as it mm-hmm. should and it just sucks because because of the time period it came out and where it was at and what it was presenting people hated this movie and i don't 
I, it's so unfair to it. I love that it's now getting a revival and people adore this shit because we adore this shit. Yeah, I think unfortunately that the thing just suffered a like wrong place, wrong time, wrong time situation because had it come out before or even like maybe after a couple years after Alien or Alien 2, people would have appreciated it a little more and seen it for its worth because it, it's of course people were going to compare it to two other huge alien movies that were premiering at the time ridley scott's alien and steven spielberg's et <laughs> not only those completely opposite ends of the spectrum that deal with the same content but it's just it's not fair to compare any of these movies because while they all might deal with extraterrestrials they're they're all three of them are completely different movies completely they're totally completely, different. completely different it sucks because people were also complaining about like the pacing and that the characters didn't feel like well drawn out and that it only relied on the special effects and i can see why but i completely disagree the slow mm -hmm. pacing is what gives those special effects moments like it's pow factor i'm sorry have we never seen a john carpenter movie all his movies are paced out yeah, thank you and the pacing in this just totally pays off and yes the special effects people were complaining that they were super grotesque i'm like that's that the you're point. missing the points over there and you're over here you're not getting it darling so it's it's horrible so i hate that, that that's where it happened and even john carpenter has like viewed this movie as his favorites but also just like what had happened as a horrible disappointment for him but because of that box office debacle he lost a multi-movie deal with universal studios he had been dropped from a lot of films he was originally meant to do firestarter in 1984 i believe mm -hmm, um, with Drew and, he was, and he was dropped from that because of this whole situation and i feel like we would have had a completely different carpenter if this had gone well yeah if this had been a success we would have got <sighs> It would be, yeah, like I said, he would have, we would have gotten a different John Carpenter because John Carpenter at his core, like we've said in past episodes, is totally punk rock and independent oh, and will always do what he wants to do. So I'm glad that this wasn't a big success at the time for him because it didn't. Otherwise, like he would have taken a completely different career path and we wouldn't have got quite the filmography that we have now. I know it's one of those weird blessing in disguise things because yes, it does, it did not do what we would hoped it would do at the time period that it came out but i am so ecstatic for the love that it gets now because this is one of horror's like most well-regarded anything like you ask mm -hmm. any horror fanatic about the thing and we will go off darling we love this movie it's great and it's it's classic carpenter at its core and i it's obviously something that we hold near and dear to our heart speaking of keeping it near and dear to your heart what do you give this movie what are your final thoughts like i said multiple times this is classic carpenter at its core i 100 adore this movie and while it's not without its faults i still regard this as one of like my top five classic carpenter films um and for that reason i'm going to have to give it a whopping five out of five Winner, winner, chicken dinner, you fucking whore. Because I also give this fucking movie a five out of five. It is my favorite Carpenter movie. Woo! Arguably, it's my favorite Carpenter flick. But it, yes, there are faults to it. But 
overall, this movie is just a masterpiece. It is a masterclass horror film. Almost like horror film 101 on how to build tension mm -hmm. and how to build ambiguity. And yes, if there's anything that Carpenter and his team are well cre at creating is tension and atmosphere and tone. They do mm -hmm. it in all their films and it's always so well, well the exception of like Ghosts of Mars and shit. <laughs> For the most part, it's always <laughs> so well done. Uh, this is the end of the thing. I know we went a little long on this one because the production is wild, but it's a wonderful ride. And I'm going to put this like in my hall of fame of flicks that we've done for this show so far. Mm-hmm. A, a solid pick for our Carpenter pick for the month. If you are liking the Queens and want to continue keep listening to us, you can follow us on Instagram at the Carpenter Queens, Twitter at Carpenter Queens. My personal account is Nicholas Alexander Photography. My personal account is at STFU Ray. And I hope you guys really like this week's episode. I had a blast. I cannot wait to smoke with you guys next week. Yes, next week is our 420 Bongathon, and I can't wait. <laughs> but we will catch you guys on the next one. All right, catch you on the flip side, guys. Bye, 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye, bye.